Thank you very much. It's uh, great to be with you here at, at New Horizon. And uh, I think the first thing that I, I should say is that if you were here expecting to, to listen to a wise and erudite theologian, I'm, I'm sorry to disappoint you. Uh, and indeed, if you came along to hear a, a wise and erudite scientist, I'm not sure I can quite deliver on that one either, but, uh, but I'll do my best. In fact, if you we're here to hear David Glass. It turns out that he couldn't make it either, and so he has sent Lloyd his, along his Android robot to speak on his behalf. And so if you have any difficult questions at the end, and uh, I, as the, the robot, can't answer them, you can email him in due course, and he will try to give you a more thoughtful answer. This is a, a very important topic, uh, I think, and an increasingly important topic because it, it raises a lot of questions that are not just abstract questions, but they're questions about where society is going, about the use of these robots, what uses we have for them, how they will relate to humans, how we will relate to them, and also more fundamental questions about what it says about us as humans and how we think about machines and these intelligent machines that we're, are developing all around us. Indeed, in the, in the title that Stephen had for the, the talk today, Brave New Worlds, uh, Brave New Humans, rather, question mark. Well, there is a question mark there because some people, when they're speculating about all of this, actually wonder whether there's any place for humans in this brave new world that we're moving into. Now, some of this is very speculative. I'm going to be talking a little bit about some of the speculative end of that. I won't possibly be able to deal with all of the, the issues, but I want to focus on, on a central one and then begin to think about that from a, a Christian perspective. So that's, a, that's where I'm, I'm heading with this this morning. But when we think of artificial intelligence and uh, human-like machines, probably where we're most familiar with them from is the movies. And of course, the narrative in the movies is often something like this. These intelligent scientists develop these super intelligent machines, and the plan is that these machines will work for the benefit of humanity, but it doesn't quite work out that way. The machines actually take on life of their own, and in the end, actually, they threaten human existence. And then we get some human heroes who come to the rescue, and they then defeat the machines, and normal life is, is resumed. And so AI is often portrayed in a very negative way. Uh, and in the real world, fortunately, that's not quite true. Nevertheless, there are some, some challenges that we, we have to face. So if we move away from the, the movies, well, what exactly is artificial intelligence? Um, maybe you've never come across it. Well, actually, I'm quite certain you have come across it. Uh, if you've done an online search this morning, artificial intelligence has been involved in that. Indeed, you'll hear the terms artificial intelligence and machine learning. These are two buzz phrases, and they're in the news, in the media all the time. And in fact, these days, they're, they're very, very closely related. All of the modern successes in artificial intelligence are based in developments in machine learning. And you might also hear about the phrase big data and things like this as well. This is one of the reasons why this has become so prevalent because there's so much data out there, data from medicine, from science, but also online, from social media, we're all putting our, all our information up online and now all of this data is there and computer programs 
are then able to deal with that information. And of course, companies want to use this, politicians want to use it, and so this is big business. But when you go to do a search and you put in um, New Horizon, for example, into your search engine, well then what happens is there's, there's so much out there that it could find and what it's going to do is try to tailor that, try to find the most relevant bits of information out of all of that to put it on your screen. And indeed, very rarely do we even go to the second screen because it's so good at, at finding the relevant information for us. This is artificial intelligence at work. Or when we, we go online and we're doing our shopping, whether it's for food or books or movies or whatever it is, we're getting recommendations. And this might be based on the previous book that you read. And of course, this is very helpful, in many cases anyway, uh, that you go online and you're getting these recommendations about books that actually you would be interested in because they're similar to ones you've read previously. Again, this is artificial intelligence at work. But of course, it's also of use in other areas, um, in, in medical research and in scientific research more generally. We might think of artificial intelligence, if we're thinking of the movies, as just being about robots um, and usually uh, ones who are going to cause problems for us. But it's much more than robots. It's these computer programs that are able to process information in an intelligent way. So in some of the work, for example, that I'm involved in at Ulster University down in, in Jordanstown, we've been working, uh, looking at how we, we deal with data relevant to Alzheimer's disease to help in the diagnosis of this. So again, rather than thinking of artificial intelligence as a negative thing that is somehow going to cause great problems, it has huge potential benefits in a whole range of, of fields of medicine and industry and in commerce and, and so on. So it has a lot of beneficial potential for humanity. And there are many other areas as well, of course, where it's used. Face recognition. This is one of the things we thought that we were good at recognizing people's faces. Um, although, as I get older, I sh struggle more and more to put the names to match with those faces. But this is one of the things where artificial intelligence has proved, improved dramatically in recent years and is now used for security purposes. Also, if you've applied for a credit card, it's more than likely there's an artificial intelligence system that is actually looking at all your uh, your credit history and all your relevant information and making a decision. There might be a human who is rubber stamping that, but there might not be. It might just be a machine that's doing it all. So artificial intelligence is involved almost everywhere in modern life. So one of the questions then that I want to ask is, should we be concerned about these developments? Where is all of this Going. And so I want to highlight just a few areas where there has been a lot of, of debate. Um, let's take driverless cars, for example. These have improved a lot over the last 10 years or so in terms of, uh, of just what's feasible. But still, this raises a lot of social and ethical questions. I mean, for one thing, would you trust uh, uh, an automated car? How would it make decisions, especially if there's potentially an incident? And who's going to program the machine to make those decisions? And is it going to give preference to the people who are inside the car or to people who are outside the car? 
And do you want to buy the car if you don't know how, how the program has been? Well, you see the sorts of issues that arise here. And there's a lot of legal issues cropping up in that context as well. We think of AI in warfare. So we have these drones that can be controlled to some extent by humans from thousands of miles away. We don't have to send... Um, send soldiers in so much these days, we can just use drone technology. And often this is controlled, not even by a human thousands of miles away, but by a, a computer program using artificial intelligence. This has, has great benefits. But also, now what about these machines making decisions? Decisions for lethal strikes? At the moment, there's still a human involved in that process, but there have been moves to make it a fully automated process. And indeed, even when humans are involved, well, really, the artificial intelligence system, it has done all the work on deciding whether this is the right thing to do. Can a computer decide that? And then the human presses the button. Is that really where we want this to go? In the AI community, people have become increasingly concerned about this kind of thing. What about job losses? There have been some studies done over recent years that are predicting within the next 20 years or so, about 50% of, of us will be out of work because our jobs will have been taken over by, machi by machines. I hope there'll still be a need for people to teach computer science at university, although I'm not sure. Maybe we'll be replaced by robots as well. And so some people are saying, well, what we're going to have to do now in our careers is to retrain every 10 or 20 years. The idea of going into a job for life, that'll be a thing of the past because computers will, within 10 years, they will be able to do your job, so you'll have to move on to something that computers can't do yet. But will we all be able to do that? And then what's going to happen if there's so few jobs? Uh, well, maybe society will provide a, an income for everybody and we, we won't have to work. Well, that would be fantastic, wouldn't it? We, we can just be on holiday all the time. Well, that'll be all right for a few weeks. But then that does raise questions about what's our usefulness? Are we of any use anymore? If we're no economic use, what other kind of use or value is there to our human existence? And actually, from a Christian point of view, isn't work a good thing? Okay, we like our holidays, but isn't work part of what we're made for as well? So, some questions there. And then let's go to the technological singularity. Well, this is the most extreme sort of concern we might have. This is roughly the idea that artificial intelligence will take over the world in some shape or form. So we see a Time article with the, the year 2045, and you mightn't be able to see the, the subtitle there. It says, the year man becomes immortal. This is Ray Kurzweil. Um, Kurzweil is a computer scientist, an inventor, and he's the director of research at Google. And he has thought a lot about where technology is going and speculated a lot about what might happen in the future. Um, we might be inclined to dismiss some of his predictions. Nevertheless, he is the director of research at Google. He is one of the people who is making these things happen. And his prediction is this, that by 2029, computers will be as intelligent as humans. They'll be able to pass what's called the Turing test, which I'll come back to shortly. 
By the 2030s, we'll be starting to include technology in the human brain to enhance our memory. Wouldn't that be wonderful? We'll just be able to implant chips and this will improve our memory and, and solve a lot of problems for us. We'll become better and better human beings, won't we? This is certainly Kurzweil's idea. And this will continue further. By 2045, we'll reach this singularity. And this will just improve human intelligence beyond measure to the point where humans as we currently think of ourselves no longer exist. We have effectively merged with the AI technology and we're into a new regime, a new age of transhumanism. Now, when you think about where people like Kurzweil and others are going with this, one of the things that they want to, to say is, well, it's all just going to be so much better for us. We're going to be smarter. We're going to have better memories. We're going to be funnier. We're going to be more intelligent. This is great. So life is going to be better. They're also striving for immortality. And I'm not joking. It's that actually we will get to the stage where we will be able to live forever. And we won't have to worry so much about the problems we have with these deteriorating physical bodies of ours. No, we'll be able to get an upgrade. Every 20 years or so, we'll just be able to go and get a new upgrade with the latest technology. And eventually, we'll be able to live forever. And so you quickly see that there are religious themes coming into this. Immortality being one. Happiness. Um, that, that this will bring peace on earth to to all of us. And also, we'll, there'll be these new powers. We won't be limited by these physical bodies anymore. Well, but hold on. From a Christian perspective, isn't our physical body part of who we are? Isn't that part of God's good creation? So do we want to really escape from these physical bodies to upload our minds into some virtual world and live forever there? Well, again, I'm not going to talk about the the theological and religious overtones of Kurzweil's moves. I suspect Stephen Williams might have talked a little bit more about that kind of thing, but, but there's certainly a religious dimension to where some people are going with all of this. Kurzweil says that we're, going, we're really going to exemplify all the things that we value in humans to a greater degree. And Max Tegmark, a prominent physicist, says that perhaps life will spread throughout our cosmos and flourish for billions or trillions of years, and perhaps this will be because of decisions that we make here on our little planet during our lifetime. There's something really big here, something that we as humans can do that will transform life in the universe, and we can do it here and now if we develop these technologies. But others aren't so sure. The late Stephen Hawking, the famous cosmologist, said that the development of full artificial intelligence could spell the end of the human race. And the multi-billionaire um, inventor Elon Musk describes artificial intelligence, or AI, as our biggest existential threat. So what are we to make of all of this? Should we be concerned? Well, I think one of the things that I would want to emphasize, we need to think about the benefits of these technologies and not just the concerns. Artificial intelligence is a good thing. Like many technologies and many scientific developments, it can be used for great good, 
but it can also be used in a negative way as well. And so we need to think about this technology and how we're using it and what it's for. So one question is, how much control should we give to AI? Well, of course, we might say, well, we shouldn't let it take over the world. But how much control should we give it? Actually, maybe we give it more control already than we like to think. So there's a story in, uh, in one of the books that I'll mention later about this, where the author speculates about what, it, what might take place in the future. So we have this young lady thinking about getting married. And there are two possible husbands on offer that she's thinking about. And she's torn between the two. So how is she to decide? Well, she has her own ideas, she has her own feelings, but she's not sure how to make a judgment on this. So what does she do? She consults her personal assistant on her mobile phone or computer. And this personal assistant, and we can imagine that we have moved a little bit further in the future, knows everything about her life. It knows all about her, her history. It knows every email that she has sent. It knows where she has been because it's been able to keep track of her movements throughout her life. It knows what movies she's read, what books she's, or sorry, movies she's watched and what books she's read. It knows a huge amount about her. It knows about her friends and her family, etc. So she asks her personal assistant. And she's trying to decide between John and Paul. Now this assistant, it turns out, also knows an awful lot about John and Paul as well, knows all about their history and their tastes and, and so forth. And after doing a bit of processing, the personal assistant says, I would recommend John because I think that on the basis of all the information I have, there's an 87% chance that things will work out well if you marry John. And then the assistant says, but... Actually, I know that you would sort of prefer Paul. But I've kind of factored that into my calculations as well, because you can't just go with your blind feeling. I've factored that in, and uh, still, I'm making the recommendation you should go with John. Well, this all seems far-fetched, of course, but how much control do we give to our devices and AI technology? Well, I bet a lot of you are like me. If you're going somewhere and you're not, you don't know the area, you will put it into, into Google Maps and you will follow it without question. And um, I, I used to remember when my wife and I were dealing with maps and things like this, there was no end of confusion. But now Google will sort it all out for us. So we just trust it. And what about online? All the information we put out there on social media sites. One study that was done a couple of years ago tried to use AI to predict people's responses to a personality test. Okay, So you're doing a personality test, and what, what they did was to ask some of your work colleagues and some of your family, including your spouse, to predict what answers you would give to these personality questions on a survey. Now, how was the machine to do this? Well, what it did was it looked at all your likes on Facebook and then made predictions. It turned out that the system was able to make better predictions about your personality 
than your work colleagues with just 10 of your likes on Facebook. Just 10 likes. Maybe says something about how well we know our work colleagues. With 300 likes, it could predict your answers better than your spouse. So do these systems actually know our personalities better than our spouse? Indeed, maybe they actually know our personalities better than we know ourselves. And this is just based on our information on, on Facebook. So actually, maybe, th- maybe we're already giving away quite a lot of control here. What about ethical decisions? Should we let AI make ethical decisions? How would we do that anyway? Who's going to program them to make these decisions? One of the things I think we really need to think about is just what is the purpose in developing these technologies? It's very easy to think, well, here's a problem in society and with technology that can help, so let's get a technical solution to it. But actually, maybe we're missing out on a human element that is really of fundamental importance here. And in particular, we need to think about the value of human life. What exactly is the value of human life? So there are big questions here, and I'm not proposing to answer these. One of the things that I think we need to do as a Christian community is to think about these, these sorts of issues, and where this technology is going. Whether it's in universities or in research, whether it's in business, whether it's in churches, or just in a social context, where is all of this going? And I think all of us have, an, have a role to play in thinking about this, not just in terms of our own personal use, but in terms of, of where we go with this generally. And indeed, there's a general issue in society about this. And I think Christians need to be able to have some input into this. Because I think the way many people look at this is they're a bit uncertain about where all this is going. People are concerned about where artificial intelligence might go. And what is distinct about us as humans? Well, I think maybe Christians, I think Christians do have something to say about this. And I think we should have a voice in these kinds of debates But these are are big topics and a whole host of them, and I think we need to think about them a lot more. What I want to do for the rest of my time is to think about some fundamental questions relating to this, and in particular, whether humans are unique. And from a Christian point of view, how that might relate to us being made in God's image. Are humans unique, or are we just Sophisticated computing machines. Well, according to the cognitive scientist Steven Pinker, we're just computing machines. Thinking, he says, is computation. The, the mind is a neural computer. That is what your mind is. But a, a, a philosopher, John Searle, says that the programmed computer understands what the car and the adding machine understand, namely, exactly nothing. So who's right about this? Well, just before I move on and and try to address that question, let me just highlight a more general point. We might think, well, how do we as Christians respond? All of this, it's all very difficult stuff, and doesn't this in some way challenge our view about who we are as humans? Actually, I think this challenges everybody. And I think actually it challenges people coming from an atheistic or naturalistic mindset even more. 
So uh, a very significant book dealing with a lot of these sorts of issues and where all of this is going in the future is Homo Deus by Yuval Noah Harari. Now he's coming from a, an atheistic perspective himself, but he looks at how we treat ourselves as humans. And when he thinks about liberal democracy, it's funded in certain principles about who we are as individuals and about the free choices we make. And here's what he says. The world is dominated by the liberal package of individualism, human rights, democracy, and the free market. Yet 21st century is undermining the foundations of the liberal order. He says that free will exists only in the imagined stories we humans have invented. He says there is no God, there is no soul. We got rid of those a long time ago. There's no free will anymore, and there's no individual self. You are just a sort of sophisticated machine of some kind. And the consequences for this for humanity are enormous. And yet I think this falls out pretty naturally from an atheistic or naturalistic worldview. And this is why I think it's very important that we as Christians have something else to say about this. So one of the ways I want to think about this is, is artificial intelligence possible? Could AI experts actually develop computer programs that would be intelligent? How would we know? I mentioned at the start of my, my talk that I was a robot. Well, how would you tell? How would you distinguish me from the real David Glass if I'm a robot? Well, to answer this question, um, we're going to have to think about a test. But first of all, let's just think about some of the developments, some of the successes of artificial intelligence. Back in 1997, IBM's Deep Blue beat Garry Kasparov, the world's chess um, grandmaster, the, the, the world champion. And this was of great concern to a lot of people at the time, not least to Kasparov himself, who was very depressed about the whole thing, that he had been beaten by a machine. He, there he was, sort of representing humanity, and he lost. And, but IBM said, look, this is just humans who have developed the technology, and we have put sort of human strategies and thinking into the computer. This is not real artificial intelligence. But we go forward to 2011, and IBM's Watson computer wins a, a quiz show against humans. And this was much more impressive because it's, it's now dealing with human language and able to respond to questions in a meaningful way. But still people might say, well, look, it, it had the whole Wikipedia database available to it and it was able to search all of this. So maybe again, it's just the power of the computer. But we now move forward to just last year when DeepMind's AlphaGo Zero program beat the Go world champion. Go is a Chinese version of chess, and apparently it's far more complex. It's just far more potential moves available. The interesting thing is how the program achieved this. It wasn't just by humans telling it how to play the game. In fact, they didn't tell it. They only gave it the rules. They didn't give it any strategies. What it did was to play against itself multiple times and learn from its experience and reinforce its ability until it improved and kept on improving. And of course, it could do this all very quickly to the level where it beat the world's best player. 
It's learning from its experience. Well, that begins to sound like human intelligence, doesn't it? It's the way we would do it. So the question is, are these systems really intelligent? Well, one way to try to answer this is via the Turing test. Alan Turing played a, a very important role in code breaking in the Second World War, but also in the foundations of modern computer science. And he proposed the Turing test. And the idea is a very simple one. You have an interrogator um, in one room. Uh, and in two separate rooms, screened off from the interrogator, you have a human and a computer program. The human interrogator doesn't know which is which, but is able to ask them questions via text and has to try to discriminate between them, tell who's the, which is the human and which is the, the computer. And the basic idea of the Turing test is that if the interrogator can't reliably distinguish between them, the computer system is said to have passed the Turing test. It's intelligent. Well, is this a good way to think about intelligence? Not according to John Searle, whom I mentioned earlier. He proposed what's called the Chinese room argument. So bear with me just a, a moment as I try to explain this. We have a man in a room with a rule book. From the left-hand side, there is some input coming into the room in the form of scraps of paper with symbols on them. In the rule book, it tells him, based on the symbols coming in, to go and get some other symbols and put them out at the other side of the room. Now, it turns out that the input consists of questions in Chinese, and the output is the corresponding answers to those questions in Chinese. Now, if you think about this, if we replace the man with a, a computer program, and it's processing this information and giving meaningful answers, well, then it could pass the Turing test in Chinese, giving meaningful answers to appropriate questions. There's only one fly in the ointment, according to Searle. The person in the room doesn't understand a word of Chinese, right? So although it can communicate in Chinese and can answer questions, the system has no understanding whatsoever, according to Searle. And he says, this is just what Computer programs do. They blindly follow instructions and process information, but they understand nothing. Now, there's been a lot of debate about this, but you, you see the point that Searle's making. Even if a computer program could pass the Turing test, it might appear to be intelligent, it might be able to outperform us in all sorts of ways, but it wouldn't understand anything. It wouldn't really have intelligence. Well, as I said, there's been a lot of debate about this, and I don't have time to go into the arguments back and forth as to whether Searle's argument works. But there's, a, I think, a, an even more convincing argument that um, I, I want to mention briefly. If we think about it not just in terms of answering questions in Chinese, but rather dealing with emotions. So now we might imagine a robot that receives emotional input. You might get angry with the robot, for example. And then the, the robot has a computer program that processes the information, and it gives an appropriate response. Well, it, th that might depend how you've programmed it. If it's a 
Christian robot, it won't get angry in response, okay? It will give a nice gentle reply. Um, well, or, or maybe not. I'm not sure who, who programs the Christian robot. But maybe it gets angry in return. In either way, we've got a, an emotional input and an emotional response. And this might, robot might act just like a human, and we might think that, therefore, it has emotions. But, of course, it doesn't. Why? Because although it responds as if it had emotions, it responds as if it's angry, for example, but it doesn't feel angry. Or at least there's no reason whatsoever to think that just by processing information, it would have that feeling of anger. You know that feeling that you, you have when you go to the train to go to give a seminar at New Horizon and you've just missed the train and you think, how am I going to get there at time? That's not just a hypothetical, actually. That happened this morning. But you know that feeling you have inside when you're angry about something? The robot wouldn't have that, or at least there's no reason to think that it would. So there, here's the good news so far. We are not robots. There's something unique about us, something different. But could we just be purely physical machines? Nevertheless, maybe not robots, but just physical. Is that all there is to us? Well, I want to suggest that there are at least two kinds of things in the world. There's physical stuff, like this chair, the chair you're sitting on. And this physical stuff has a weight. It has a, a shape and a size. If we're talking about fundamental particles, they might have a charge or something. And they can be described by physics and chemistry, and we can't describe them direct, directly. We, we have to observe them, or we have to measure them, or, or something of that kind. They're just not immediately obvious in our, our minds. We have to measure them in some way. Those are physical things, and the world is full of physical things. Human bodies, animal bodies, trees, rivers, mountains, all this physical stuff around us. But the world also has mental things in it, like thoughts and feelings and so forth. So you might have the following thought. You might um, think, this, this guy or this robot at the front has been talking on long enough here, and I'm beginning to feel a bit hungry, and I would really love a chicken salad sandwich. Okay. Now think about that thought, I'd love a chicken salad sandwich. What's the weight of that thought? What's its size? How would you measure it? What shape does it have? Well, of course, the salad, the sandwich itself does have a weight and a size and shape and so forth. But the thought, I'd love a, a sandwich, that thought doesn't have any of those things. It can't be described by physics and chemistry, and you experience it directly. You don't need to go and ask somebody or measure it to find out that you would really love a, a chicken sandwich. You just know you'd love a chicken sandwich. Maybe this wasn't the best illustration. Now, instead of listening to me, you're going to be thinking about your lunch. But anyway, hopefully you, you get the point. So the world consists of these two very different kinds of things. And I would suggest that there's just no reason to think that really there is only the physical stuff. I would say that there are very good reasons to think that there's a mental aspect to the world as well. So, let's move towards a conclusion here. 
What is a human being? Well, I've already argued that we aren't robots and that we can't be explained in purely physical terms. There's something very different about who we are as human beings. And incidentally, I think this is very relevant to thinking about worldviews, the sort of world that we live in. Do we live in an atheistic or naturalistic universe? Most naturalists think that the physical universe is all there is. So where does the mental fit into that? Or do we live in a theistic universe where there's a creator God who has made everything? Well, interestingly, we get some atheists who would agree with these two points at the top, that we aren't robots and that we can't be explained in purely physical terms. But then I would suggest that raises a huge question for their atheism and points in the direction of there being something more to the universe we live in. Well, what do we as Christians think? Well, of course, central to the notion of who we are as humans is the idea that we are made in the image of God. So let me just very quickly read um, a few of the, the places where the Bible refers to this. So in Genesis 1, Then God said, Let us make mankind in our image and our likeness, so that they may rule over the fish in the sea and the birds in the sky, over the livestock and all the wild animals, and over all the creatures that move along the ground. So God created mankind in his own image. In the image of God, he created them, male and female. He created them. It's interesting that it's only humans who are described as being made in the image of God. As far as I'm aware, not even the angels are described as being made in the image of God. There is something very unique about who we are. Furthermore, we're given responsibility in Genesis So we have a moral responsibility for the world that we live in. And it applies to men and women. It applies to all of us, to all human beings. If we go to Genesis 5, when God created mankind, he made them in the likeness of God. When Adam had lived 130 years, he had a son in his own likeness, in his own image, and he named him Seth. And in Genesis 9, whoever sheds human blood... By humans shall their blood be shed, for in the image of God has God made mankind. And so we see more very important things about who we are as humans. This applies to all of us. It wasn't just before the fall. The fall had dramatic consequences for us as humans, but we are still made in the image of God. And because we're made in the image of God, we have this enormous value that Genesis ascribes to us. Human beings are of value. Now think about that in the context of this modern age that we live in. Where do humans get their value from? Going back to that point I mentioned about liberalism and the value of human life and the choices we make. But where does that value come from? Well, Christianity tells us it comes from God, that he has made us in his image. So trying to bring all of these things together, humans are unique. No other creature is made in God's image. We're also morally responsible agents. And I think this is very relevant in the context of artificial intelligence. Are we giving away too much of our responsibility to machines? Of course, there are some ways in which getting a machine to do various tasks for us is very beneficial. 
But when it comes to serious questions of ethics, do we really want to hand over our responsibilities to machines? Well, I think based on Genesis, we have a mandate for not doing so. We are the responsible agents. And we shouldn't be handing that over to artificial intelligence systems. Also, this applies to all humans, as I've mentioned. It isn't lost due to the fall, and it provides this foundation for the value of all human beings. One of the challenges we face with where this is going, if these computer systems, these AI systems, get to a level where they can do a lot that we can do, in fact, they already can in many respects. They can beat us at chess, they can beat us at quiz competitions, and in many other areas. And if that trend continues, as undoubtedly it will to some extent, what does that say about us? Where does our value come from? Should we treat these machines as having value? Well, not according to Genesis. Because these machines, unlike us, are not made, and never will be, in the image of God. So, in conclusion then, AI certainly raises many questions. Questions of a social, technical, ethical, philosophical, theological nature. And this is why one talk by someone like me can't answer all of these questions. These questions are going to affect us all in different ways. Not only how we think about the world, but our practices in the world, what happens in businesses and all the rest of it. And so we all, I think, need to think about these issues. But it also raises interesting questions. And I think it raises them in a very positive way, actually, about what a human being is. These modern movies and discussions, they raise a question about what is special about a human being. And actually, I think most people out there think there is something special about a human being, but they don't quite know how to articulate it. Because after all, aren't we just physical entities ourselves? So I think we as Christians have something very positive to contribute to this discussion. What I've tried to do then in my talk has been, first of all, look at some general considerations to answer this question about humans. And I've suggested that on the basis of these, we're not robots and we're not purely physical. So even someone who doesn't believe in God has good reason to think that we're not just robots, that there's something more to us than just our physical nature. But finally, these general considerations fit perfectly, I think, with a biblical account of who we are as humans, that we're made in the image of God. That's why we're not just robots, why we're not purely physical entities, why we have value, and we're also beings of enormous value with responsibility for how we live in the world. And so rather than trying to answer all these questions about artificial intelligence, what I've done is to try to focus on this central issue about who we are as human beings and begin to give some sort of framework that might help us begin to think about how that applies in the context of these developments in technology. So I'll stop there and uh, leave it open for, for some questions, if you have any. Okay, so I'll just repeat the, the question um, for the sake of the, the recording. So whilst you, you agree with what I'm saying about the biblical perspective about humans being made in the image of God, nevertheless, you recognize the, the scary possibility of um, implement, imp, 
plants in our brain and these developments with technology where we will, will merge with the technology to some extent, or at least these are possible directions that things could go. Um, and I, I think they are. I mean, th these technologies have, have developed a lot. And um, there, there certainly is the potential, I think, for these developments where technology could be involved. Uh, we could develop our, our, our brains by including technology in some ways. So, so these are, and I think many people, whether they're Christians or not, will think, well, these, there's something scary about all of this. You're right. This is some, shouldn't we be concerned about this? Although sometimes it's difficult to articulate exactly what it is we're concerned about here. So, should we, should we go down this route? Should we allow these technologies to develop? Well, I think one of the things that I want to say in response to this, first of all, I, I'm quite skeptical about the more dramatic predictions that are being made, that we will merge with the technology and that the singularity will occur. Um, people who, who have worked in AI and are really trying to promote the profile of it have tended to make overblown claims in the past. Um, but nevertheless, I think there are new developments, and it's not just AI, it's biotechnology as well, and various other technologies with genetic engineering and so forth that are, are taking us in new directions. So it's, it's difficult to say just how we should answer those individual questions, but we certainly as Christians need to think about them. And I suppose what I'm trying to do is start that conversation and think about the, the firm foundation that we should have um, for beginning to think about approaching them. And furthermore, whilst there might be just a, a sort of scary side about where this is all going, there is a further scary dimension to it, I think, for a lot of people. And that's to say, well, if that's what happens, and these machines do merge with humans and become more intelligent and so forth, where does that leave us? What does that say about who we are as humans? And this is something I think we do have a very concrete answer on, um, both by these general considerations, but also with a biblical framework. So I hope, for me anyway, this provides a good starting point. Okay, thank you. Um, yeah, so the question is, uh, is I hope I, I'm summarizing these questions correctly. If I'm not, please feel free to, to jump back in again. Um, that perhaps one of the failings of AI is that it's, it's designed to succeed, um, uh, whereas uh, real intelligence fails sometimes. We as humans, we, uh, we, we certainly fail at many things, and sometimes that's deliberate in the context, for example, of raising children, that we deliberately fail um, at games um, to allow our children to succeed. Um, and AI would just be lacking this, and this is a very human element, I suppose. And I, I think this is a very good point, actually. One of the things about something like the, the Turing test that we mentioned, when Turing wrote about this, he said that one of the difficulties would be that the machines would be able to, you'd easily be able to tell the difference, because if you just give them a, a long multiplication with two numbers that had five digits, uh, the machine would give the answer straight away and would get it right, whereas the human would take ages and might get it wrong. Um, so he said that really to pass it, the, the machine would need to pretend, actually, to, ha to, to make mistakes to become more human-like. It would need to be programmed in that way. So we could, I suppose, although that's generally not a goal in AI research where people try to develop their systems to fail, they try to develop them to succeed. And uh, I, I think there is an underlying point here 
there is a difference just in terms of how we how we think about these technologies. We're not, for most cases, trying to develop them to be human-like, to be fallible. We're trying to develop them to be, um, to be perfect, to be flawless. Actually, that brings us back into a religious dimension. Um, and is that a good idea? I think it does raise a question about morality and, and just how human-like these systems could ever become because the way they have been developed is certainly not like us. And we, of course, learn through all these failures, don't we? Um, so, yeah, I think it's a fair point and it's, it's not one that is usually taken on board by uh, AI developers. Thank you. Um, so the, the question is that as the technology develops, uh, we might blame the technology for failures, actually, that if something goes wrong, we, we, we blame the computer system rather than taking responsibility. And it, indeed, even in the human case, um, we, we might say, well, I was programmed to, to do it that way, and, and that's, that somehow is meant to justify our, our bad behavior or something of that kind. Um, yeah, I mean, I, I think there's a couple of things that I'd like to say about that. One is that the point you, you rightly mentioned at the end there about giving away responsibility again. We, we just blame the machines. Um, there, there is a, a challenge here, though, because if you think of something like the driverless cars, there are huge legal issues about this. Well, where does the responsibility lie when there's an accident? Um, is it the, the company who made the car? Um, is it the programmer? Or, or, or who is it? Um, we presumably can't just blame the machine. But if we give more and more responsibility over to machines, there might be a temptation to do that. And again, it's this concern I have that we hand over our responsibility. So I think this is quite right. We, we need to make sure that we keep the responsibility. So whilst we can develop these technologies to be beneficial, I think the way we need to think of them as tools. Tools that can be beneficial in certain respects. But nevertheless, they're tools, tools that we have made. And if they go wrong, it's our responsibility, having developed them. We shouldn't try to treat them as somehow human-like entities. Um, we are the ones who should be responsible. The other point just that I was going to make about this is the idea that we ourselves are programmed and might be like the machines in some way in this respect. I think there's an enormous issue about the, the topic of free will. And I think, I mean, this raises all sorts of philosophical and theological questions. But free will is under enormous attack um, from a, a secular perspective because it's very difficult to see if you think the universe is just naturalistic, that it's all just physical stuff, then it looks like we are pre-programmed. It looks like we are just determined to behave in the way we do. There is no room for free will. And many atheists are now saying this. But what does that do to human responsibility? So again, I think there's something we want to say from a Christian perspective about people being made as responsible agents who have the ability to make choices uh, as, um, based on, on the idea of, of us being made in the image of God. Okay, so thank you. Yeah, yeah so the, the idea here is that in, in terms of artificial intelligence, that in developing these technologies, this is... Um, a creative enterprise that humans are engaged in, and insofar as we do this, this is, is reflecting something of the image of God, that creativity 
in us. And, and to that extent, that's a, a good thing. But then God also sets boundaries on, on how far we should go with this and, and how exactly we're, we're using our creative abilities. Um, and the point would be that we should go back to, um, to use those for the glory of God. Um, uh, I think all I can say is amen to that. Yeah, I think that's exactly right. Um, I think... It, Again, one of the things that you please should not go away from here thinking is that there is something evil about artificial intelligence. I mean, I work in this area, and I, I, it's, it's got great potential benefits um, in many, many areas. But like all scientific technologies, it can also be used in negative ways. And so one of the things that we as Christians need to do in thinking about this is to think, well, how can we use it in positive and beneficial ways? And that requires us to draw on our resources um, in terms of thinking about who we are as humans. I think in most cases, this is probably not rules that God has given us, but rather thinking about general biblical principles of who we are as humans and how we should develop technologies and why we're developing them. What's the purpose in it? If the purpose is just to create something as intelligent as ourselves or the purpose is just to create something that's sort of almost godlike, then I think that's not a Christian motivation for e- either of those. E- either of those, you know, I think we need a, a much better motivation for where we're going with it. But even in a, a secular context, how we, can we translate that into a secular context where people don't think about it in the image of God? Well, I think there too we do need to encourage other people to think about it in terms of what exactly the purpose in this is. Why are we developing these technologies? What are we doing to make sure they're beneficial for humans and, and so forth? So, so I think we can carry some of that over into a context that might be shared by people who don't hold our worldview. Yeah. Um, so just to try to summarize again, um, the, the Turing test might be a bit of a, a red herring because it, it means we're focusing on the human side of artificial intelligence so that we... I suppose, interpret how these machines work in a, in a human-like way. Um, whereas what we should really be thinking about is what the technology is being used for. And so um, the example given there was uh, a, a robot that's been designed to make paper clips. That's what it will do. That's its goal. Um, and if it achieves super intelligence, that might give rise to all sorts of problems. Um, yeah, I think that's right. I, I mean, I think the Turing test is a, a complete red herring um, for the, the reasons that I've given. Um, in that, many people put this forward as a way to think about how would we ever know if one of these systems was intelligent, if it just acted like a human. Um, but I think the, the sort of arguments of Searle and others give us good reason to think that it doesn't really matter how intelligent they behave to act. That still isn't a good enough reason to think that these machines really have intelligence. And so in that sense, I'm, I'm not worried about our humanity being undermined by the developments in the technologies. So the concern is really more an ethical one about how the technologies are being used. And even in the example of paper clips, um, one author, it's not paper clips, uh, that's his example, but he, he does give another example about a machine that has been programmed to do something, and it will do everything it can, and if it has these amazing powers, it will destroy humans, essentially, in your example, to make as many paper clips as it can, and nothing will get in its way. So I, I, I think that's right. I think we do need to think about what we're using the technology for and how we're developing it to do that. What sort of powers and responsibilities 
ways are we handing over to these machines? And so, again, I want to go back to this idea of thinking of the technology as a very useful and potentially beneficial tool that we have that can be used for great good, provided it's used with, with wisdom. Mm, yeah, yeah. Well, thank you. Uh, yeah, great, great question. I think that, so the idea is that there's an issue of justice here, that um, I've been talking a little bit about our responsibilities um, as, as humans in terms of, of how we develop this technology, but that sounds like there might be a democratic process, but almost certainly it won't work that way. What will happen is we'll have these um, large multinational companies uh, and, and others who are developing the technology and perhaps will um, will use the technology, even that wasn't your point, but will perhaps even use it to direct us in a certain way, but that really it will be out of our control. Is that... Yeah, so it's, it's who's controlling the AI and who's using it and for what purposes. And I, yeah, this does raise a whole set of other issues which I, I haven't mentioned. So for example, the use of AI technologies and machine learning in politics. And we look at some of the recent elections and who, who's controlling this and how are they using it to bring about their desired political outcomes? And so there's a lot of, a lot of power here that, that some of these organizations and governments as well have and how the technologies might be used. And so I think this is a real concern. I think that's, it's a very good point. And it's one that we, we need to think about. And I think we need to think about it now. I think society needs to think about this now because um, in all of these developments, almost certainly what's going to happen is you will have a certain elite that has access to the technology and can use it for their own purposes. And so I think as a society, we need to be just thinking, first of all, about how do we use the technologies? How much control are we giving over already? And how might that develop in the future? But also, insofar as we have the opportunity to do something about this is to raise these issues. I think these should be debates that there is more discussion about in society, and I think Christians have a, should have a real stake in that, should have a voice in that discussion um, about how the technologies are being developed, why they're being developed, who's controlling them. And so, for example, if I take the warfare one that we used earlier, there's enormous resources being um, put in by the, the US military, for example, in the development of these technologies. But now you are getting people within the AI community who are saying, well, ho hold on a second, we're developing these technologies and we're not happy about them being used in that way. So I think that the more that um, groups of scientists and other people in society are part of this discussion, are aware of the dangers, and are then trying to rein in some of these concerns about justice and about abuse of the technology, the better. So I don't have a, a simple answer to that. I think we just need to be part of that discussion. Thank you. Um, our time has gone, as I noticed from the hand clap next door. So um, let me just pray, and then you can go and get that chicken salad sandwich. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this time that we've had together um, and just to begin to think about some of these big questions about the world that we live in and where some of the technology is going. But Lord, help us also to remember who we are as people who are made in your image, made for relationship with you, that that is the very purpose of our existence. And I pray that you will help us to understand better who we are in you and then be able to use that to, to think about how, how that works out in terms of the world we live in, in terms of how we treat other people, in terms of how we use technology, 
and in terms of how this technology might be used in our society. Help us to go about this in a way that brings glory to you in everything we do. We just pray that you'll be with each person now as we leave. In Jesus' name.